Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. Why would a guy, a 67-year-old ex-Vietnam helicopter pilot, be solo rowing the entire length of the Mississippi? It was the toughest mission, believe me, that I had during that war. I would have much rather flown into a hot LZ than have to do anything like that again. It makes you sit up straight in your chair. That's the sound of canoe paddles moving through the water of the Mississippi River. It's also the sound of dedication. The dedication of Chief Warrant Officer Jim Krigler, a Vietnam veteran who is paddling a canoe down the entire length of the Mississippi River. After reading about Jim's quest on his website, I called the number I saw and left a message. And I was amazed. A few hours later, he called me back from inside the canoe. We talked for a few minutes, and we decided to schedule a time we could chat the next day. So the following interview was recorded while I sat in a comfy chair, and he was in a canoe paddling the entire time. All right, sir, I've interviewed people in their car. I've interviewed people at ball games. I think I did an interview once on an airplane. I've never, ever interviewed someone who was paddling much less paddling the entire length of the Mississippi River. But, uh, Jim Krigler, how are you today? Oh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty good. I'm, uh, I feel good. I'm, uh, it's a nice day. The water's flat. There's just a little bit of wind. As you can probably hear it in my microphone, I'm averaging about six and a half miles an hour. And, uh, you know, where I go, I mean, you, you, you can do about 40 or 50 miles in a good day doing that. That's about what I'm doing. I've already done about 35 miles today. And I've got just a few more to go. I'm going to make it a 40-mile day. All right, Chief. That sounds good. Now, you know what I'm going to lead with? The biggest question of the day, the question everyone asks you. So uh, go ahead and let's talk about why. Why would a guy, a 67-year-old uh Ex-Vietnam helicopter pilot, he's solo rowing the entire length of the Mississippi. It's a crazy, audacious act. And, uh, you know, I have to tell you, I have to be honest with you, Phil, it wasn't on my bucket list of things to do. <laughs> uh, it wasn't up there with climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and all that stuff. But I'll tell you something. Yeah, please do. Uh, in May, well, it's May of this year, 45 years ago this month, I had uh, the honor and the burden of escorting my roommate, escorting his body back to his family from, uh, from a crash site in Vietnam. He was killed in action. His name was First Lieutenant Thomas Francis Shaw. He was from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And Tom and I had a handshake agreement that if one of us was killed in action, that the other would 
everything they could to escort the body back and comfort the family. And 45 years ago was the first time I met a Vietnam Gold Star family. And it was the toughest mission, believe me, that I had during that war. I would have much rather flown into a hot LZ than have to do anything like that again. But it wasn't nearly as tough as it was on the Shaw family. I mean, their sacrifice was immense. Mm. 40, 40 years later, 40 years after I met that family, they tracked me down. That was about five years ago. They wanted to reunite with me, and they wanted me to speak at an event that they had, which I did. But that caused me to uh, get involved with other Gold Star families. And, and since that time, Phil, I've spoken to hundreds of Vietnam Gold Star families. And one of the things that I've found is that the story is almost always the same. You know, they got a, a knock on the door or a devastating telegram advising them that their, their son, their loved one, was killed in action. About a week later, they got a, they got a coffin and a neatly folded American flag. They buried their son. And then because of the controversial nature of the war, no one ever talked about it again. And to me, I'm sure that's not every Vietnam Gold Star family, but it's many of the ones that I've spoken to. And to me, Phil, that's just not the honor uh, that, uh, that those families deserve. And so the reason I'm going down this river is I want to start a movement in America. I would like normal American citizens, just a normal American citizen, Sam or Joe Smith next door, to look up a Gold Star family in their community, any Gold Star family, Get a piece of paper and an envelope and a 49-cent stamp and write them a thank-you note thanking them for that sacrifice or call them on the phone or get their email address and email them. It doesn't have to be much. But as Americans, it's got to be something. And so that's the main reason I'm going down the river. In fact, I'll tell you something. I'm, I thought about calling my senator uh, from uh, this canoe and asking him to put uh, a proposal in place that we make the day before Memorial Day go to our family day. Memorial Day, we honor those people that have died in service to our country. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the sword that slays the warrior remains in the heart of those that are left behind. And those families have to live with that hole in their heart. And I want to honor them more than what they've been honored. So that's, that's the number one purpose that I have. I'm also raising money for a charity that honors those families. It's called American Huey 369. It's in Peru, Indiana. Uh, it's a group of uh, wonderful patriots that's acquired some Huey helicopters. We have three very flyable, actually flew in combat in Vietnam, helicopters, Hueys. And we will give Gold Star families honor flights on those Hueys. And I'll tell you something. In Vietnam, Phil... The sound of those, everybody knows the sound of a Huey blade, those wop, wop, wop. Right, blades. right, 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 right. And, uh, you know, in Vietnam, for our troops, it was a sound of hope because we were coming to get you out of there, or bring you ammunition, or take the wounded back. Well, today, that same sound of those blades is really more the sound of honor and the sound of healing. And if you could see these families when they get out of that ship and we, we take a photograph of them in front of the helicopter every time they 
they, uh, they don't have life. I mean, if you could see their faces and talk to them, they're actually they're finally seeing honor for for the great tragedy and the sacrifice that their family has gone through. And so that's why I'm so passionate about about raising money. Your listeners can go to my website. Uh, yeah. It's called mission missionofhonor.org. And go to my website, and it's all there. Uh, I also wrote a book called Mission of Honor. Yeah, I was going to ask you to get into that next. Tell me a little bit about your book, because a lot of this motivation was probably born in the research and the effort you put into making the book. I'll tell you what, a couple of, uh, about uh, six or seven years ago, I, my, a couple of my grandsons were reading, had to do some books reports on Vietnam, and they discovered that helicopter pilots were in every battle. And uh, they asked me to write some stories and maybe even write a book. And so I, I, I tried, but uh, honestly, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm a typical Vietnam veteran. I came back from that war, was chastised by America, and I said, the hell with it. I got my college degree from the GI Bill, and I went about my life, and I made a life better than most of my non-Vietnam peers, okay, as did most Vietnam veterans. Uh, so I put all that stuff behind me. And when my grandkids asked me to write about it, I had a great deal of difficulty until uh, until my wonderful 80-something-year-old mother <laughs> sent me every letter that I had written her in Vietnam, oh, all 12 or 14 of them. It wasn't a whole bunch of them. But uh, I had an opportunity to read my words from 40 years prior. And uh, the first letter that I opened up, was dated about uh, two or three months after I came back. I was kind of curious why that letter was in that stack. And so when I opened the letter up and read it, it was a suicide note that I had written to my mother after I came back. Oh, God bless. And I have to tell you, uh, when you read your own suicide note, it makes you sit up straight in your chair, okay? Mm. And I was more interested, you know, it's kind of like a Vietnam for most guys. It's kind of like a little mosquito buzzing around, you know? You got to take care of it. You got to get rid of it. And so for me, writing that book was all about, you know, getting rid of that, doing something cathartic. I wanted to tell the story of uh, a real American hero, which was my my roommate, First Lieutenant Shaw. I mean, I'm not the hero. I was just a helicopter pilot that wanted to survive the war, like everybody. You know, in flight school, they told us there's Bold pilots and there's old pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. <laughs> so my mission was just to be a good pilot, be as good a pilot as I could, and do my best and get back alive. That's that's what I wanted to do. That's what the book's about, okay? Mm. So there's also a message for America in there. You know, I, I, uh, I'm not going to tell you what my moral dilemma was. You have to buy the book for that, but I had a... It's a moral dilemma. You know, when you're 16 years old and you make mistakes, you know, you like wreck your dad's car or something like that. But when you're 20 years old, which I was, you make some really doo-doos, really big ones. And I had a moral dilemma at the time. And I was at a crossroads in my life, and I didn't know which way to go, how to make a decision. I had really nobody to help me do that until I met my roommate. And my roommate, uh, (laughs) after he heard about my moral dilemma, he shared with me his compass of life and how he makes decisions on, you know, what to do and 
Look, let's face it, Phil. I mean, even today, all of us, throughout our entire lives, you're going to come to a crossroad. You're going to come to a fork in the road, and you're going to have to make a decision. And usually, usually, the easy fork to take is not the right decision. The right decision is usually the more difficult decision. And so my roommate gave me a compass, his moral compass, on how to solve those problems. And I am forever grateful for him for doing that. And I share that moral compass with, with people in the book. Because I think, as America, you know, we kind of lost our way a little bit. I think we need a, I think we need a little moral compass, maybe even in Washington, D.C. So anyway, that's why I wrote the book. Mm, outstanding. Again, the book is called Mission of Honor, and you can find it at Amazon. You can get a link to it if you go to your website, which is missionofhonor.org. I can't wait to actually sink my teeth into it. Normally, I try to read through the entire book before I do the interview, but, uh, you know, I I knew you were paddling down the Mississippi. I had to catch you while you were still in the boat. And uh, <laughs> Well, I've got, a, I've got almost 1,100. Tell me, look, i got 1,094 miles under my belt. So uh, everybody today, I hit the halfway point. The halfway point is 1,120, 1,125 miles. Now, talk to me a little bit about the journey as you've had it so far. You started in Minnesota, a state where my family's actually from. So uh, good on you for being a Minnesotan, eh? <laughs> and uh, you started yeah, in Minnesota I, back in uh, in April of 2017. Um, talk to me about how whereabouts you are now, sure. how long it took you to get where you are today. Well, uh, I've been going a little over a month, a month and two days. And... Uh, I started on Earth Day, April 22nd, and I, I got out to the headwaters at Lake Itasca with my muck boots on, and I literally walked across the river. And when I got there, uh, the VFW Honor Guard from Bemidji was there. They didn't tell me they were going to be there, but the sun was rising, and those stars and stripes and the VFW flag was was uh, was there, and they they really gave me a good send-off. They did not tell me they were going to do that, but uh, there's a guy named Bruce Malrood up there who's the commander of the FW, and he made sure that I had a good send-off. And, you know, the water is on, you know, that creek, it's just a creek up there. It's only 15, 20 feet wide, if it's even that wide, and it's probably six inches deep. Yeah, little-known fact, for I, those that have never been to Minnesota, I've actually been to the headwaters myself with my parents, and uh, it's amazing. The Mississippi, we think, is this mighty, wide, fast, swift river, but it begins as almost like a creek. I mean, in northern yep. part of Minnesota, it's, yeah, you can walk right across it. And there's actually trout in that river, <laughs> which, I, which surprised me. Yeah, I, I paddled, the first day was about 60 degrees, and I I set up my tent and I woke up the next morning with an inch and a half of ice and snow in my tent oh, no. and paddled the entire, the entire second day in the snow. And it was a beautiful snow. There was no wind. It was like being in church all day. It was totally quiet, beautiful wildlife up there, birds, geese, just anything you can imagine. It was just gorgeous. So just as we get to the part of the interview where we're talking about the spiritual, quiet, peaceful nature of this journey uh we get interrupted and it's kind of ironic you're seeing wildlife you're in kind of untouched coastline although i can hear a train in the background so you must be near the coast right now there's train tracks there's train tracks all along the river 
And uh, when they come to a crossing, which there's one coming up, they have to blow their horns. But yeah, I've been uh, going past trains for about the last 500 miles. It was just after the noise of the train kind of faded off into the background that he shared with me something that was really telling. It showed the depth of the spiritual side of this journey for him. You know, you're out here on the water, it's just you and your maker, buddy. You know, there's nobody else out here. And uh, I bet I've only seen five or six pleasure boats in a thousand miles. And only one other canoe. I've probably seen about 10 or 20 uh, tugboats. Of course, this is their river. The, mm-hmm. the further you get down the river, the more you're going to see more tugs. But, uh, no, it's a, it's a good time to... Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a really overly religious guy, but honestly, you know, when you're alone, I mean, you know, I talk to my higher power. And uh, I think you got to trust, you know, you got to trust in your higher power. That's actually part of the moral compass is you got to trust in your God. you got to make tough decisions and then go with it. And... Uh, Anyway, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or if I'm just paddling. No, and you know what, Jim? This is what's going to be a pleasure about talking to you a few times on this journey is that I will be able to just share this moment with you. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your rig, this canoe you're using. I mean, I envision canoe at first, you know, and I see, uh, you know, the two-sided paddle that my grandfather yeah. used to have and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, rowing on each that, side. Yeah. Talk to me about the kind of uh, mechanisms you're using on your canoe to make good time. Sure. Well, the boat, the boat I'm in now is a Winona canoe. It's a Kevlar canoe. It's uh, called a Minnesota 2. Uh, it's 18 and a half feet long. And it has no seats in it and no thwart, you know, no uh, no carrying thwart. Um, It's a totally blank canoe. And what I have in it, I put a, what's called an easy row. It's spelled E-Z-R-O-W. And it's a forward-facing rowing system. That's where you hear my paddle sitting in the water. It's a forward-facing rowing system. And I can go about twice as fast in this rowing canoe, forward-facing rowing canoe, as I can in my solo. This boat is very stable. And if you, if you can imagine what it's like, now let me just talk to you about being an old guy and doing this. I'm, I'm getting in pretty good shape for my age. Oh, that was my next question. <laughs> my next yeah. question. Please tell me your age, you, because you yeah. are really an inspiration to me now personally. Yeah, well, I'm 67. Uh and uh, my, my birthday is February 2nd, 1950. So uh, imagine you're at the gym and you're on a, a rowing machine for five or six hours without stopping. <laughs> so wow. that's what I do every day. I, I actually, this, this rowing system is actually made out of a Concept 2 rowing machine. Hmm. So the, the seat I sit on is a sliding seat. It's just like it would be in the gym. And... Uh, so I slide back and forth. I use my legs and my stomach and my back and my shoulders and my arms. It's a, it's kind of a total workout. And I'm, you know, after doing it for, after doing it for a month, I'm getting in pretty good shape. So <laughs> I can I imagine. I, about 10, I think I lost about ten pounds. But you know, you're probably burning 
I'm just going to guess I'm burning an extra 2,500 or 3,500 calories per day than I would normally burn. So you almost can't eat enough to, you know, to uh, keep yourself going. Now, In fact, I was eating a, I was eating a little energy bar when you called me. I, I usually eat a bar or some snack once an hour, and I force myself to drink fluids so I stay hydrated. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's important, but, you know, honestly, I'll tell you, um, just doing all this has cured a lot of aches and pains. Uh, You know, as you get old, you stop stop doing stuff, and you get kind of, I don't know, crotchety. Sure, sure. No, I mean... Things don't don't move as well, but as, as you're rolling... You're using almost every part of your body. Not the only part that, uh, you know, for me, um, not the only part that's difficult is, you know, after five or six hours of sitting and sliding back and forth, your lower posterior sometimes screams for a little mercy. So <laughs> Your lower posterior. Seven, I love it. Yes, your ass, basically. Seven, <laughs> seven or eight hours would be probably the maximum that I could do this. But once I get below St. Louis... You know, that, that current, right now, that current at that stage is probably 10 miles an hour in the, in the main channel, maybe even more. You know, so, if, I mean, I can do 13 to 15 miles an hour. You know, you, know, you only got to go out there for five or six hours, and you're going a long way. Um, I'm curious sure. about the logistics of each day. So when you're done and, you know, you've logged your five hours, you think you've made decent time. Do you just look for a nice spot to pull over, or is this kind of mapped out with some strategic thought so you know exactly yeah, like no, a port I, you're going to yeah, pull into? Good, and Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I have a Corps of Engineers river map which shows every uh, public boat access on the river. And, uh, you know, since I've got such an odd piece of gear... I can't just pull it out on the railroad tracks and, you know, or on a, on a dike. Mm-hmm. So I have to have a boat access to get my boat out. Now I have, a about a week, maybe 10 days after I started a guy that I flew series with, uh, and another roommate of mine while I was in the army, his name is Herb Koenig. Herb's retired. He's 70 years old. And, uh, you know, the guy felt sorry for me uh, sleeping in a tent in the snow. <laughs> because that's where I was sleeping in, in a tent. So he he drove his uh, pickup truck and his camper uh, 1,200 miles from Dallas up to, uh, let's see, where did he find me? Uh, somewhere in uh, north of Brainerd, Minnesota. Okay. And uh, he caught up with me, and he said, no, you're not going to sleep in a tent. He says, I'm going to be your ground crew. So every day we take a look at our map. And we figure out where there's a good out. We figure out how many miles it's going to be. Some days it's 30, some days it's 50, some days it's something different, 40 or something like that. And, of course, it also depends on the winds. I mean, today is a nice day, but well, I tell you, Phil, I've had some hellacious days with winds. You know, you get a 25-mile-an-hour headwind, and you're, you're battling it all day. Those are the days I go to sleep at 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. I can imagine. I mean, it's an audacious time to be doing So this is pretty interesting. As we get ready to conclude the interview, uh, he just kind of tells me out of nowhere that before he started his journey, he went to a Catholic church, and he asked a priest to bless his trip. And then this priest, his father John, pulled out a medal, uh, a travel medal that he gave me, and he said one of the most glorious 
travel prayers I've ever heard in my life. Hmm. And what he said was uh, that my brothers that were killed in Vietnam, the men that I knew, he said that they're angels and that uh, you'll have one in front of your boat, one on either side, and an archangel in the back. And he said, you don't have a thing to worry about because you'll be protected. And so I have never once questioned um, the fact that those guys are with me right now. I was moved when he told me that. And you have to be moved or inspired to know he's gone a thousand miles in a canoe. And although he's got more than a thousand more to go, he never loses sight of the singular reason that drives this whole trip. And frankly, Phil, there's a lot of people in this country that don't even know what a gold star family is. You know, I want to change all that. I'd like to, like I said, I want to start a movement a little bit and, and just uh, make, some, make some waves out here on the river. And uh, I'm going to keep getting the word out. So I really appreciate you reaching out to me and, uh, and helping me do that. That's Chief Warrant Officer Jim Krigler. While his waves may only be made on the Mississippi, the impact for Gold Star families will be felt from coast to coast. I'm Phil Briggs, and that's Vet Story. For more on this story and others like it, check us out at ConnectingVets.com. All-Star Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.